0: This is Literature Out Loud at Dalnavert Museum, The Extrasodes. Um, Hello again. Uh, My name is Charlene Van Bickenhout. I'm the Programming Director at Dalnavert Museum. And uh, this is Extrasode 5 Mm -hmm. of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And we are joined by Dr. Christopher, who is an Associate Professor um, in the Department of English and Writing Studies from the Western Western University. Uh, Welcome and thanks for coming back.
1: Oh, well, My thank pleasure. you. Uh, it's been a, a real pleasure to be, be a part of this and to be um, seeing, you know, listening to and watching the, the podcast. It's been good.
0: Wonderful. I'm so glad that you were our first uh, guest on the show, on the show, on this podcast show. Sure. And, uh, and, and now you'll be our final guest to wrap everything up. We've come to the end of the novel um, where we finished all, we've, we did the 16 chapter plus epi- epi- uh, epilogue version, mm-hmm. and we've done all of those, we listen to everything. So no spoilers anymore. We're, we're, we're there. We're going to mm. reveal all. We're going to talk about the end, okay. the end of the earth, evolution, very, very far into the future. What can you tell us about Victorian ideas or responses to evolution?
1: Well, yeah, let's begin with the end, right? Mm. Victorian responses to evolution. Well, let's leave aside um, the more obvious um, rejection of evolutionary thought by conservatives and sometimes some religious thinkers um, who simply rejected it to court because it... it's, it seemed to reject God's law uh, and seemed to abolish any place for faith in the world. Um, and so they would have no time with it, uh, though there are still people who reject evolution. I, I think the vice president of the United States is, is one of those people. Let's leave that aside. Let's talk about the people in the late 19th century, like Wells, Um who were increasingly inclined to accept the basic tenets of evolutionary thought. And that's true that by the time that Wells is writing The Time Machine, the initial reaction to uh, Darwin's thought had largely subsided. And by the 1880s and 1890s, Darwin's increasingly be accepted as, a, as truth. Sure, there are people who just are never going to buy it, and that's true today, but by the 1880s and 1890s, Darwin's definitely marks a major innovation in the development of scientific thought and indeed the emergence of secular society. So let's talk about those people who kind of buy evolution and what their responses were to it. Two principal reactions, I would say. First, uh, the idea of progress, and second, the idea of degeneration. The idea of evolution seemed to support two very divergent ways of understanding history. It was possible that evolutionary thought could be used to figure history as a progressive developmental process that was moving towards perfection. And it was also equally possible to use evolutionary thought to suggest the exact opposite, that history was in an imminent mode of decline and that was about to subside into a kind of perpetual dissolution. Um, So let's talk about the first of those, the idea of progress. Um, For many Victorians, especially for those who became associated with something called social Darwinism, Darwin's theories of natural selection, um, in which he imagined as basically as a means of discussing the way in which species, biological species, adapt uh, and change over time, um, social Darwinists thought that you could take that concept from biology and you could transplant it into sociology, that you could use those same theories of adaptation over time to discuss how it is that societies developed, as if societies w- were like species. Um, and for many social Darwinists, that idea that you could use evolutionary thought to describe how it is that societies develop over large stretches of time, offered a handy uh, way of explaining and indeed rationalizing the British Empire for one thing, Uh, the apparent innate superiority of the English race for another. These are ideas that certainly had had some currency before Darwin, but in the past, the idea of an innately superior British race, or that, the, um, that Britain as a society represented a certain culmination of historical progress, these were ideas that would have been couched in religious terms. God chose the British people. But now Darwin lets you do something of the same and say that it's scientific in basis. It's a modern, secular version of a kind of manifest destiny. It's no longer God that chooses Britain to rule over the world. It's nature itself that has seemed, apparently, to choose the British. And the evidence for that? The survival of the fittest. If that's all history is, is the survival of the fittest. And Britain is now uh, in possession of the world's largest empire— seems to suggest that that's direct evidence that nature herself must have allowed that to be. Nature chose uh, that. So there you get social Darwinism and the thought of social Darwinism uh, offers a nice rationalization for things like the extermination of indigenous people. Sorry, those people were simply not equipped to survive the struggle of the fittest. And in some curious way, this is not a kind of moral calamity. It is nature itself simply weaning out the weak, And so you can see the ways in which Darwin's thought uh, offers a model of progress that would be well-suited towards a culture, like the British were in the 1890s, that were increasingly imperially minded, that increasingly had to justify the things that they were doing in the world. And Darwin offered a pretty handy way to do those things. Of course, Wells was an ardent believer in the theory of natural selection. In our first extrasode, we we talked about his studies at the normal school where he was uh, working with uh, T.H. Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, uh, one of the foremost speakers and defenders of Darwin's thought. Um, But Wells, like Darwin himself, actually, was really skeptical about this move that the social Darwinists were taking, which is to say taking these bunch of ideas that were developed around biology and moving them into the human sphere of what was now being called sociology. Uh, I don't think Wells bought it any more than Darwin bought it, Um, in part because Darwin had no sense at all that there was anything inherently driven towards perfection about evolutionary thought. Just because things change and adapt to their environments over large periods of time doesn't mean things are getting better in any necessary, not in a moral sense or an aesthetic sense or any of that. It's merely the brute fact of adaptation that natural selection explains. It has nothing to say at all about whether or not that adaptation is morally superior or moving to a finer, better way of being in the world. In fact, to a certain degree, I think Wells was deeply skeptical about that idea that evolutionary thought was moving us to something finer and better or that the English race was that finer, better thing towards which all history was moving. And that gets us pretty close to the the novel, doesn't it? It's pretty much a kind of critique of social Darwinism and the kind of narrow-minded egotism of the English mindset, the English who believe that they are the culmination of history, uh, that they are as far as history goes because this is a text that's going to show how, how narrow-sighted that is, how narrow-minded those people are, um, and it's going to explode this kind of bubble world that they live within, in which the present of the now seems to be comprehensive for them, and it's going to suggest that they are deeply misguided. Uh, further, he's going to push this idea in a kind of ironic way. Wells is a very ironic thinker. He's a, a mischievous thinker. He's a playful thinker. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take the image of social Darwinism, the idea that things are going to get better and better over time, and that there's going to be a moral and aesthetic improvement of the race as we continue to develop over time. He's going to take that image. It's the Eloi, right? The Eloi are the image of a model of history that depicts time moving towards aesthetic perfection and moral perfection. The Eloi are beautiful. They are like the, uh, the late 19th century esthetes um, made manifest. And they're vegans, as you were talking about with, with Dr. Vanessa Warren. They're, they are morally good people. And yet they are childlike, simple-minded. They are, for all that they are, evolved towards moral and aesthetic perfection. They are devolved beings. They are cattle. They are nothing more than flesh meat waiting to be corralled by the Morlocks. That's Wells working at his ironic, skeptical best to take Darwinian concepts of, or especially social Darwinist concepts of evolutionary thought, and flip them on their head. This thing that looks like perfection is, in fact, what the Victorians would have called degeneration and this was the other major way of thinking about evolutionary thought in the late 19th century, that there was every reason to start thinking that um, evolution as the adaptation of species over time may lead us backward rather than forward it may it may endanger the moral perfection of the species rather than uh in any sense improve it and that was very much huxley's idea huxley was deeply deeply cautious about the idea that um there was anything inherently moving towards the betterment of society his deep worry was that in fact evolutionary thought might in fact lead us to the collapse of morality
0: not to its improvement wells takes that uh, that social Darwinism almost to this level where we see uh, the world far into the future, and the world is even without humans. Mm. That nobody even exists anymore. There's uh, it's no, there aren't any built structures. Mm. There's very little of what we think of as life, as living. And the days are much much longer than our own. It's a very bleak world. Mm. Distant future we visit in the final chapters, and so. Um, I wonder, is that social Darwinism, or is there another reason? Why why is it so bleak
1: at the mm. end?
0: Like, there's nothing there. Like, does he see something in the distance? Yeah. If not, maybe. It's so dark and black. And does wells have uh, a scientific basis for this kind of vision?
1: Right. Um, well, the last of the time traveler's voyages then take him, as we saw in, in the last of the episodes, to the furthest reaches of history. It's now millions of years in the future. Remember, he had to scramble onto his time machine and he kind of jammed the gears forward and just because he was trying to escape the Morlocks were trying to eat them. Uh, and so he's kind of tossed to an indeterminate period at the very far reaches of history it's, itself. And there's nothing left now of what we would call human civilization, right? No more British Empire, no more ruins of the museums in South Kensington that you saw earlier on. All that's gone, in fact, even the Eloi and the Morlocks are now gone. In fact, there's nothing even recognizably human anymore. And indeed, I think Wells was drawing on scientific theory for his depiction of this future. Um, in the first of the extrasodes where you and I talked, Charlene, uh, we talked a little bit about the laws of thermodynamics. And this was a theory that was developed in physics in the 1850s and 1860s. and The law of thermodynamics stipulates that in a closed system, energy tends towards a minimum and entropy towards a maximum. This was still a new concept at the time that, that Wells was writing. Um, And it was one that was developed at the time to help physicists better calculate the uh, conversion of energy into motion in steam engines. Because it was steam that was driving the industrial economy and they really needed to have a really fine sense of how much uh, energy you could produce from a steam engine from from say a ton of coal. And so the um, laws of thermodynamics are developed out of that study of the conversion of heat into energy. Um, and they're principally thinking about steam engines uh, of the kind that you see in trains. And just as a steam engine gradually loses power, it, it cools off, so too the physicists came to realize the universe itself did. That there was a perfect analogy between the steam engine and the universe. And so Victorian scientists uh, were able to take the same theories that they used to predict the amount of time it would take a steam engine to cool off. They used the same mathematical formula, and they looked at the sun. And they said, well, that's what the sun is. The sun is simply a large manufacturer of heat. It's converting all this stuff into heat, and it is cooling off. And they were able to actually calculate how many years the sun had left in the same way that they could calculate how long a steam engine would run down. So too, they could calculate that. And so you start getting in the scientific uh, uh, discourses of the period, a kind of speculative interest in the imminent heat death of the universe. The whole of the world was cooling off and that this was a measurable, predictable and inevitable phenomenon this is going to happen regardless of your empires and your industrial economies eventually they will all be overcome by this other narrative the narrative of thermodynamics and that's exactly what wells is playing with here i suppose it is a kind of bleak world that Wells offers us in those final closing moments uh, of the time machine. It is also, to my mind, Wells's boldest and most imaginative creation. I think this is where the novel, <laughs> I think that Eloy Morlock thing is fun and clever, mostly as a kind of satire on the English class system um, and a kind of epate la bourgeoisie, it's a kind of um, pricking the, the middle class. It's fun and clever in that kind of social satire way. I think conceptually, the really bold move is not the mere satire on the middle class where the rich, the poor are now eating the rich in the way that the rich are eating the poor in the Victorian. That's all that, that section is. It's all it is. It's just a play on that idea. The, eat the, poor, the rich eat the poor. And now he shows the poor eating the rich. Okay, so that's all clever. And those last segments, to my mind, are far more emotionally moving. Yeah. Uh, and far more conceptually uh, bold. I think Wells is able to take that scientific discourse around thermodynamics, and he puts flesh to it in a way that the scientists weren't. The scientists will show you the mathematical formula and say, the sun will, will, will eventually collapse into disorder in X number of million years. Wells turns it into a drama. And he turns it into a very kind of interesting kind of drama. It's a drama that I don't think we have a great deal of precedent for in English literature. Wells offers us a post-human drama, a post-human drama in the sense that the history itself is no longer organized around human subjectivity, around human desire, around human aspiration, around human action. Up until this point, whenever there's been a story or a narrative of history, humans are always at the center of it. And what history is, it is human endeavor to push the world forward. Wells offers you a world in which. The world is evacuated of humans, emptied of human endeavor. Human endeavor has collapsed and it has collapsed so long ago, it never even counts. It's not even there anymore. That's a startlingly prescient, bold, conceptual move to make at this time. I don't think too many others were quite able to do that.
0: So it's very kind of fantastic, but also scientifically based. Mm. So the time traveler gets back to uh, his time in the 19th century Mm. and uh, recounts this, and our narrator um, is is recounting this to us as well. But nobody at this dinner party, because it starts off with this dinner party and everybody's there, um, nobody believes him. Mm. Um, They think he's lying upon his return. Um, Why do you think everyone thinks thinks he's lying? Mm. You know,
1: I think the dinner guests are probably right to question the time traveler um, and the veracity of his tale. Uh, For one thing, it is fantastical. Uh, And he is and has shown himself to be an eccentric, uh, idiosyncratic kind of individual who perhaps is not uh, disinclined to play games on his, on his company. He clearly in delights in a certain kind of performative gesture. Um, so you could imagine them, rightly, um, having a certain amount of skepticism about him. I think there's some more going on there, though. Um, I think one of the things that's being questioned there is the idea of experience and how it relates to language. And this is a, an important aspect of late 19th century epistemology. Um, as the secular world increasingly takes hold, it does so by readjusting our sense of what constitutes evidence of what we can accept as the ground or foundation for a truth claim. And in the past, experience, testimony, your own lived account of what you saw could be offered in a court of law. You called a witness, the witness said, I saw him do it. You swore on the Bible, so that counted as evidence as part of the narrative of truth-making. But with the rise of the scientific method, testimony and its relationship to lived experience begins to decline in its value of truth-making. And increasingly, the idea of testimony um, loses its capacity to assert any kind of truth. And this turns on a series of discussions around, for example, um, the possibility of miracles. And there's a whole discourse around miracles during this period and why it is that we can't accept the biblical account of certain miracles. The scientific argument is that if you've got a situation like the time travelers, that exceeds normal understanding of physics uh, laws of physics. That might happen every once in a while that we encounter things in our world that seem to exceed or to subvert or to contravene the laws as we understand them in their everyday working uh, nature. If that's the case, you're going to need evidence um, of a particularly strong kind, because everything else about our reality suggests that this can't be. Mm -hmm. We're going to allow you to still make your claim, because there are some things that will question the world that we understand. Um, But you're going to have to rise to a higher bar of expectation. And that bar isn't going to be testimony anymore. It's going to be physical evidence. It's going to be stuff. It's going to be things that can be measured and tested and retested. Mm -hmm. The grounds of scientific thought is not only that you can prove that something happens once, but that it happens more than once. Mm -hmm. The time traveler is sine qua non. He's a one-off And his only way to testify to this is just that, through language, through stories, he tells the assembled group a tale, and the tale doesn't count. In a way, you can see Wells reflecting on his status. He is a uh, writer of scientific romances, extraordinary tales that have a scientific basis to them, but that remain, by and large, illegitimate discounted, fanciful. Um, He's not a serious writer. He's not even going to be given the same kind of credit as a Charles Dickens or a George Eliot. He's a science fiction writer. And so you can kind of see the ways in which Wells' concern for the decline of testimony and experience uh, and the ability of language to be a medium of these kinds of accounts um, and the way in which they seem to no longer suffice as truth-making I think that's part of what's going on here he's reflecting in the time travelers the disbelief of the time traveler I think he's thinking a little bit about the disbelief around this very genre that he's beginning to shape and found the, the genre of the scientific romance
0: yeah. testimony and um evidence mm. and, um all that kind of stuff um and language uh, makes me think about uh, memory and mm. um, how we how we remember things um like the narrator uh remembers the time traveler after his disappearance and the story uh, he tells is like a memorial uh, mm. of the time traveler and, and what happened. And so what are your thoughts about how memory works in this, mm. this novel? I have a few more questions. I don't know if you want to start off with the memory one, but I, I want to ask too about about loss and, and grief and how that mm. felt in the, in the novel too. And maybe what are your thoughts about the unknown fate of the time traveler, about, mm-hmm. about the mystery of his disappearance? He doesn't return.
1: Okay, yeah, that, there's lots of things there. Um, let's start with, with, with memory then, because I think that, that's an, an important question. And the, the novel is raising interesting questions about the very nature of memory. Um, In the simplest sense, the novel is the recounting of past experiences that the narrator, our time traveler, is offering for us. As such, it's a very traditional text. But in this instance, the tales that the narrator is recounting, the memories, are the memories of things yet to come. Which is to say, he is not recalling the past and then, using the capacity of language to represent the past with that hyphen in there to to make the past present to us, he's remembering a future that has yet to come may may not come, I suppose, and so we are expected at that point to start thinking about what would it mean to remember the future mm-hmm. in what sense is memory always haunted by its own future? as much as it is merely the recollection of a past, memory itself is in some senses conditioned by the time in which it will become, in which it will be offered to us as the recollected. Uh, So it's a really interesting problem around the memory of something in this text. Um, What would it mean to remember the future? And then if you were remembering a future, how and what sense is that a memory? And how is that not, for example, a prophecy? or an intuition, or a foretelling, and what degree are memory and foretelling then aspects of each other. At the very least, it forces us to understand how much of, our, of these categories by which we structure human experience are all fundamentally uh, predicated on a certain idea of linear time. All through all these categories, the moment you give up linear time, the categories fall into disarray. And the forms of knowledge-making that they make possible are also open into doubt. You enter into a much more indeterminate, ambiguous world where it's actually very hard to tell what's right and what's wrong because you can no longer tell what's past and what's future. It's interesting in that part. I mean, that's a big part of what Wells is doing. The fundamental insight to the novella is we always think in three dimensions, but in fact, physics tells us a fourth dimension. What if we start admitting the fourth dimension of time into our epistemological categories? And one of the things the novel does then is simply upend everything because the moment you put time into it, everything starts looking much stranger and much weirder. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that's a really valuable uh, result from the text, that it does that by forcing us to think the temporality of our categories of knowledge and understanding. Grief. Grief. The time traveler 's grief is also important isn 't it? because the time traveler clearly in some senses grieves weena and yeah. grieves i don 't think he particularly grieves the loss of his buddies' back in London uh, at the dinner party doesn 't feel like he 's strong like when he 's in the future you don 't think he, he doesn 't really seem to be grieving the past he left behind, but when he gets back the section that we 're talking about, it, it does feel like there is a kind of uh, elegiac quality for it and and it does center around that figure not the not the images of the little of the crabs on the terminal beach staring into the twilight sky of a dying sun i don't think there's any nostalgia for that it's the weena section uh and his relationship with with weena uh and that momentary glimpse of that childlike edenic like experience that, that he had there okay um, so there is some sense of loss here, but what would it mean to grieve something that is in fact not lost, but is in fact yet to come? He's grieving for something that, for a woman who's not even born yet. Mm-hmm. And so grief itself becomes a kind of uh, way of troubling temporal landscapes in the past and the present too get Know, kind of um, come into collision around each other. Grief is, is something that seems to sort of uh, stall time. It makes linear time, it upsets linear time. It, grief always does that. Grief kind of um, so closely attends in such an intensive fashion to the thing that's lost, that time loses its forward mobility. You're stuck in the past. What would it mean to be stuck in a future? And I think the novel's kind of fascinated by, by just that problem. Which takes us, I guess, to, to the last of your questions about the, the time travel, the unknown fate of the time traveler, the mystery of his disappearance. How wonderful it is. Let's just take a moment to uh, admire um, the perfection of this choice on Wells' part. And I'm thinking just from a storytelling point of view just from the simple way of organizing this narrative so that it feels satisfying imagine how unsatisfying this tale would have been if the time traveler just settles back into being a bourgeois english scientist and furniture maker Um, or if he had to do something like i don't know like if he was called into a court of law and he had a judge have to stand over him and and decide whether or not what he was telling was true Imagine the way in which the grounding of this speculative flight of fancy, this bold venture into a kind of untrammeled future, if it all got drawn back to the quotidian, the ordinary, the narrow-minded, the dogmatic, the mutton-eating English gentleman, and he got stuck in that world. Instead, what you have is a text that does something quite different you have a text that ends on an opening. That enclosed temporal world, that bubble, that self-satisfied narcissistic world in which all the English seem to live in in the frame narrative is punctured. There's an escape valve. There's a route that goes outside it. And the time traveler disappears into this unnarrated, and indeed unimagined beyond. And it suggests then that the world in which the english the reader lives within this self-sufficient all-encompassing presentness of the now is in fact opens onto and is required to open onto something beyond itself something yet unthought and so the narrative itself opens to the unthought to the pain of the unthought to the unnarrated of the unthought and leaves us with precisely that possibility of the thing beyond the world that we live within. And that makes our own world feel much less substantial, much less enduring, much less all encompassing. There is something outside us. And that's a really kind of powerful thing to do for us to use this narrative to open the world of our reading to something beyond the presentness of our own world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get to think about we get to use our own imagination of what he's mm. doing, and I like it because uh, um, it leaves him changed. We know he's changed. Mm. Um, we know that he started out somewhere. He ran into the future maybe as a lark, mm. whatever, scientific interest, and he's he, it, it changed him, and now he's in search of. Of something, whatever it is, and
1: I like that. From that, that is nice. Yeah, I I, I like that point. Um, that he has changed, and that the the changes of a notable kind. This character who seems so inconsiderate of feelings and niceties and proprieties, uh, a man who seems entirely driven by scientific pursuits, uh, very Promethean in that kind of way, um, very much the mad scientist that you were talking about. Uh, he's a guy who comes to learn something about the value of human interactions and then the text itself then um, imagines him perhaps going in pursuit of precisely that you can imagine that that his escape into a future is an escape um in which he goes in pursuit of enduring valuable human relationships
0: i like to think that maybe he's he's trying to get back to lena somehow Mm -hmm. he thinks he can um, which brings me to my my closing thought here. Mm-hmm. The narrator keeps the two flowers that Weena gave to the time traveler. He um, came back with these, these uh, flowers um, that um, everyone at the dinner party thinks oh, they are kind of strange looking. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, giving a possible veracity into what he was saying, uh, what the story he was telling. Um, the flowers remind him that when everything else is gone, um, this is quoted in the epilogue here, mm-hmm. gratitude and a mutual tenderness still lived on in the heart of man. What you, Any thoughts on what Wells wants the reader to uh, take from this last thought?
1: Yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a kind of lovely moment. Um, it does offer us that little slim bit of evidence that we were talking about before, that the narrative isn't only grounded on his own recounting of this memory of a personal lived experience. It has this little tiny sliver of physical evidence, which means that we can't easily or completely discount it. There is a physical evidence for this, and it's these two little flowers that he has brought back with him. It's not enough to substantiate the account. The account still has to reside in this speculative mode of the possible. Maybe it's true. He doesn't allow it to be fully grounded in the dogmatic certainties of physical fact. But it's not completely divorced from that world either. Mm-hmm. Indeed, as the scientific romance isn't, right? The Same way the scientific romance is grounded in scientific thought, but it has this romantic speculative quality. So, too, the narrative functions in just, just that way. It gives us that little slender foundation of the physical um, to substantiate the account and yeah what does it tell us what's uh, what's the takeaway from here i think part of it then is to take us back to this larger theme um in which the text is trying to question the um self-satisfaction of the english bourgeoisie and the english bourgeoisie of the period the english reader is a uh, a reader who probably takes a great deal of comfort and indeed courage from the fact that the english have achieved so much right the telegraph, and uh, the Suez canals, and um, uh, the uh, uh, the train systems, and canal systems, and all this stuff that they've done. The empire itself. And what Wells seems to suggest here is that it's not the grand achievements. The British Museum will, will end in ruins. It will have to. All things do. If that's the case, if all things are fundamentally subordinate then to the the laws of thermodynamics, What matters? Where do you count? Where do you find value in life? If in the end everything gets simply swamped by the heat death of the universe, the decline of the sun, where then is the value of our narratives, of our experience? And and then Wells comes back to this very simple, but I think quite moving idea that the value of our experiences is is not in the grand achievements, it's not in the the steam engines um, and the telegraphs. It's in two slight flowers that were handed by one person to another, and in the simpleness of that gesture, the honesty of that gesture, the smallness of that gesture, those little half-forgotten moments of kindness and tenderness. Those are the things that count, and it's a kind of lovely thing for to leave us. Maybe especially in this time in which you and I are talking today. Maybe that's not a bad thing for each of us to remember right now. Even as we look at each other across the distance of the interweb, facilitated by the grand achievement of our technological prosthesis, what matters right now, what matters to me right now, Charlene, that yes. smile on your face, that, that, <laughs> that, glint, that glint in your eyes that I can see across that distance, that moves me much more than the, the wonders of Zoom. So lovely, I
0: totally agree and love seeing your face even though I know you have that great microphone and (laughs) and all the technology and stuff but it's you know this kind of interaction is is so important and exactly especially now um we can at least take comfort that we can have we can have this um is there anything else that you wanted to add uh the time machine
1: I think that's a a pretty nice moment to end on if I wanted to leave somebody with something I think I'd like to leave that moment with with the time traveler taking back this simple fact uh, of weena's flowers. It's nice. I think that's the nicest thing to live with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'm sure that's what HG was intended uh, to leave us with. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for participating and, um, and giving us your time twice uh, for Mm. both extra And it's just been a great conversation and I loved uh, talking with you and uh, getting all your um, expertise on this on this novel so thank
1: you so much well, thank you so much for asking me and best of luck to all of you people and the down there thank
0: you so much